Good morning again. Uh, uh, if you have been to a first service, it's uh, not here hurt to hear the God's word again and again, which is very precious. And uh, I bring greetings and uh, blessings from uh, the country called Islamic Republic of Pakistan. I was there for the last six weeks, and uh, God has blessed our trip there. And uh, he's doing wonderful things. And uh, we have our brothers, sisters there. And thank you for your prayers. You've been praying that. Well, um, our text this morning is uh, from Ephesians. Wonderful epistle of St. Paul. And uh, this morning, I want to focus, remind, and uh, meditate and expound on the subject, what God has done to us, his people, what we were and what we are in Christ Jesus from these uh, few verses. We have already read the rest of the chapter, which give us a good context, and still there's a little more context, so I will start reading from verse 1 through 7 that we would be focusing on verses 4 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Before we read, let, let me pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your rich mercies and grace you showered upon us each day. Thank you for calling us choosing us and bringing us together this morning to move among us, to be worshipped, to be glorified, because you are the only one to be worshipped and glorified. Lord, we pray that you be with us and we now are here in your presence to hear you speak to us from heaven and that we may receive the rain of your word, which never returned in vain. Lord, our hearts are prepared to learn and love your word. Your law is a counselor, and I pray that we will be ruled by it this morning and the rest of the week. It is a divine physician that I pray that in these circumstances, the pandemic, we will be healed by it. And it is our schoolmaster, and we will be obedient to it. In Christ's gracious name I ask. Amen. Our text begin. Um, yeah, we will read from verses 1 through 7. And uh, here is God's holy and infallible word. And you were dead in your trespasses, and sins, in which you are formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, 
even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In his gracious name I ask, amen. There are people I have seen and preachers even in my own country they talk about that man is just spiritually sick, not dead. And you have seen that kind of preachers everywhere. But the Bible itself doesn't tell us that. But Bible tells us that sinners are dead, not just sick. And we were too. And they need not just to be uh, restored by their spiritual sickness, but by, but be resurrected from their deadness. They need to be resurrected not just to regain their health. Because I've seen no medicine in anywhere in the world can bring a dead man to life. That's what the first three verses of our text is very rich text. Whole of the Bible, but this passage is a very rich. The first three verses tells us that uh, uh, the chapter that we were hopeless and dead in our transgressions, trapped in sin and under Satan power, unable to save ourselves. The opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 describe the dreadful condition of those who are unsaved or not in Christ Jesus. They tell us that Satan and the world system keep them in a constant state of deception. The flesh, mind, and will of the lost sinner have been affected by sin. I've seen even... I had some people in Pakistan to talk about uh, reformed theology while I was talking about total depravity. And they said, no, this is something different you are preaching or teaching. I said, that's what the Bible tells us. Every fiber of uh, uh, the sinner is being tainted by and trapped in sin. They try, they may try, but all their attempts at religious activities and self-improvement can never make them right with God. I've told this illustration earlier, but I can share with you again. Suppose you are homeless, and uh, I have seen that I traveled to many countries, and where I lived, uh, I did not have a home, but uh, I had a rental home, but... uh, Suppose you were homeless and somebody befriended you in that town, a very gracious friend, 
and offered you to buy a big, beautiful house. Can you find such a friend these days? Just suppose you have that. And that gracious friend told you that uh, you could even choose the house you wanted. Wow. Very gracious friend. And when he was hang, handing you the title deed, you reached in your pocket and pulled out two pennies from your pocket. And when you did that, they accidentally fell out from your hand in the mud. And again, you reached down and pulled, picked them up and put them into your friend's hand. And you told your friend that this gift is too big of a gift and I must pay for it. By doing this, you would be insulting your friend. And likewise, we insult Christ when we say or we try to add our filthy rags of righteousness to his precious gift of salvation. Jesus has paid fully for it. And we cannot add anything to it. That's what the text is saying. What we were and what he has done to us. All of our self-efforts cannot take away our sins. You may have tried. I tried a lot when I was Roman Catholic. I tried a lot. Did a lots of rosary. Prayed to Mary and saints. Didn't help me. Nothing can make a sinner fit for heaven. And he's left alone. The last sinner will never become holy, seek God, and escape from the fires of hell. Instead, the dead, deceived, depraved condition of sinner, condition of that last sinner, could not be stated any more horrible in any other ways or any term than stated in these three verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. That's where the last person is today. And that's where we all were at time. I hope you remember that day. But the question is, now what that dead, deceived, depraved, and doomed sinner need? We are excited about evangelism and mission, and uh, I've been just, I returned from a trip. So what the last word need, depraved and doomed sinners need? They need divine intervention. That's what the verse 4, the first two words of verse 4 tell us. They need divine intervention. They describe us very well. What I want you to understand today is that salvation is of, of the Lord, not we cannot earn we cannot earn it. God Almighty personally invades the dead and alien heart of the lost sinner and caused it to become a living saint and amazing and life-changing life grace of his. And I want to examine this morning our text and subject under two major points. The first point is divine intervention, which will have a three aspect of divine intervention and the second point is divine identification 
will have three areas of divine identifications. Let us turn to the, our first point. Let's turn again to verse 4a. But God being rich in mercy. The verse 4 begins with two mighty antithetical words. But God. These two words are compared to the desperate state of fallen humankind in verses 1 to 3 and to the gracious initiative of sovereign God in verse 4. We were the subject of wrath, but God had great mercy upon us. We were dead, and but God made us alive. That's what these two words tell us. Also, we are told that we were slave in a situation of dishonor and, and powerlessness, but God has raised us and has given us the, the position of honor and power. Thus, God has taken action to reverse our condition. Therefore, it is essential to hold both ends or both just together, both parts of this contrast. Namely, what we were by nature and what we are by grace right now. The human condition and the divine compassion, God's wrath and God's love, they should be held together in order to understand the truth of Paul this morning. These two words, but God, they are very little word, six little letters, very simple, even children can learn. I learned, uh, it took me a long time to learn these two words. These just little letters, one conjunctions and one personal noun may just be the greatest words in the Bible. These two words tell us where salvation originates and what is the source of our salvation. And the answer is given there, it originates in the person of God, but God. Then these two words also tell us who initiates the salvation. And we are told there, it is God God always makes the first step, first move in salvation because the lost sinner is incapable of making the first move toward God. Did we? No. That's why First John chapter 4 verse 9 says, we love because he first loved us. It is God who, who, who took the first step. And also in John's gospel, St. John talks about no one man can no no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him that's what the reformed theology teach about that it's god god is sovereign he is the one who took the first step also these two words marks the very big difference between life and death these two little words make a big and great difference between a life of turmoil and a life of peace, and a life of, uh, between life and death, between salvation and damnation, and between heaven and hell. I would ask you, brothers and sisters this morning, 
take a moment to contrast these truths of verses 1 to 3 with the two word, but God. Take a moment to look at yourself and see what the personal intervention of God made an internal difference in your own life. And praise God, he has took personal interest in me. I can testify this morning. I was, I'm Roman Catholic. I was Roman Catholic for four generations, Roman Catholic. My great-grandfather, um, I think they were Sikh or Hindu, worshiping idols, and they started worshiping Mary. And I did too. And God took a personal interest in me. He brought somebody to share the gospel from South Korea, a missionary who introduced me to a reformed seminary there. He took a personal interest in me, and I blessed the day he came, called me his son. I wasn't looking for that divine savior at all. Praise and thank God for his personal intervention. And now I am saved by his grace. What about you? Can you praise him for his personal intervening in your life? Of course, we should this morning. God's intervention is personal. He personally intervened in his people's life. Secondly, God's intervention in verse 4b is precious. Look at the next phrase in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. God is not, God did not only personally intervene, but he's also being rich in mercy. Let us take a moment to think about what Paul is saying here. He mentions that the fact that God is rich in mercy. A simple statement, but it is very important and profound and precious statement. And it is, he repeats again and again this theme in his epistle. Let us look at chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, he himself, in himself we have, we have been, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of God's grace. The word rich, people love this word. The word rich refers to an overabundance that which is without measure and unlimited. The characters, this characteristic of God suggests that God possesses an overabundance, overabundant, measureless, and unlimited quantity of mercy. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 5, 8, the same assertion is made. That is, by grace you have been saved. If you group together verses 4 through 7, 4 to 10, that is actually an inspired psalm or hymn celebrating the glorious salvation and the sola gratia. And if we read, when we read uh, the, 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 the earthly life of Jesus Christ in the Bible, 
we see our Savior Christ was marked by his mercy. He was marked by his mercy while he walked on this earth. Whenever he saw people, many times the Bible says that he was moved with the compassion, like in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. He moved with compassion when he saw the crowd. He had compassion for them because of his rich mercy, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. He looked upon those who, who were helpless in their, inflict, in their afflictions and in their sins. And on those occasions, our Savior's mercy moved him to reach out in love. The Lord's mercy for sinners flow out of his love. And Jesus assured his disciples of his love. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in me. That is a precious love of Christ. He's not personally love us, but his, his love is precious. His precious intervention of God in our life, in sinner's life. And thirdly, in verse 5a, God's intervention is not only personal, not only precious, but it is profound. Notice again, when, God, when God's intervention occurred, what was that time? Verse 5 says, when, even when we were dead in sins. Even when we were dead in sins. God did not wait until we improved our condition. Though we tried, I tried a lot, but he did not wait. He did not wait until we got better. And I say, he did not wait even until I joined RPCNA nine or ten years ago. No, he set his love on, the, on us while we were still dead in our sins. He loved us in spite of our wickedness. He reached down to us when he knew that we could not and we would not reach up to him. That's verses 5 and 4 and 5 answers three crucial questions regarding our salvations. First question is a very simple question, little, why God made us alive? Why God made us alive? The answer is found there because of his very nature. He is merciful. Because God being rich in mercy. The second answer question is, when God made us alive, and we are told there in these two verses, even when we were dead in sins. And thirdly, the question is, how God made us alive? The answer is found there by grace alone and to Christ Jesus alone. When we are placed in Jesus Christ now, we become the exact opposite of what we were before what is portrayed in, in verses 1 to 3. And everything now in us and for us is changed, and it, it is changed forever, permanently. Isn't that profound? Thank God for his personal precious and profound interventions. And now I want to move on to our second point. God's intervention is not only personal, 
precious and profound, but he also identifies us with Christ, and that is divine identification. And we will see three areas how he has identifies us with Christ. Not only God has intervened in our lives by loving us and saving us from our lost condition, but he also identifies with, uh, with his son those who are redeemed. In other words, when God looks upon us, he sees just as we are in Jesus Christ because we, are, we have a union with him and we are united with him. He doesn't see our sins, but he sees our, the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't see us as we are, we were, but he sees us as we are in Jesus Christ. He changed our relationship with Jesus Christ and with him. In our sins, we were separated from God. In verse 12 of this text, clearly tells us that's what, how we were separated. Verse 12, uh, chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. We were not united. We were not in him. We were separated. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you look at this verse, in the first part of this verse says, we were without or separated from, separated from Christ. At the last part of this verse says that we were without God. So there wasn't any relationship between us and God and Christ. But God has changed our relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only changed, but he has first time connected us with Christ. Before we had a different relationship, we were his enemy. But in grace, we are placed into a vital relationship with Christ. And let us look at verses 13 and 14. And then contrast with verse 12. Verse 13, 14 of this chapter says, But now, before what we were there, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barriers of the dividing wall. Did you see how God has brought us near, connected us with Christ, united us with Christ, and broken down the barrier of dividing wall. If you look at the prepositions in a three verses, verse 5, 6, and 7, there are noticeable three important prepositions. Verse 5 says, with Christ, and verse 6, in Christ, depending on a different translation, verse 7, also in Christ. We are united. What is true of Jesus Christ is true of those who are in Jesus Christ. This passage speak of, speaks of at least three areas in which 
the redeemers are identified with Christ. Three areas, let us look at them. According to verse 5b, we are, first of all, we are identified with him in his resurrection. Let me read again verse 5b. Made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ or resurrected. Made us alive means resurrected. There's not, um, the resurrection is not something that we are waiting. Of course, there will be a resurrection, general resurrection of dead in future. But we are already made alive. We are already resurrected with Christ Jesus. Sinners are already made alive. That means we passed from death unto life. And if we are already met the resurrection and life, now we must be living a new life for the glory of God. As a result of our union with Christ, we have a new life in us. But that life is not our own life and not for our own pleasure. Christ lives in us and we live in him. That's why Paul reminds us that church in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When God made us alive or resurrected, he marked a very significant, significant difference. A difference between the sinners and the saint, and difference between unbeliever and believer. But what is that difference look like? Do you see any difference in your life? Did God change certain faculties in believers that they, that the unbelievers lack? Did he change our mind to give us new brain, a new intelligence, or anything else like that? I don't believe that that is the case. We always had those faculties. And these faculties have been our servants and instruments for God's glory. What is a new then? It is a, it is a new bent, a new dispositions. Because we are made alive with him, there is a new power working in us and guiding our these faculties in a new direction. So before these faculties were the servants of Satan, but now they are parts of our bodies are the servants of God, serving him and glorifying him. Because we share Christ's life, it means that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. We are changed and permanently changed. We have been empowered to live new life as new creatures to, the glor to glorify God. It doesn't mean that we do not have sin. That's why there's a doctrine of sanctification there. That's true. But this is also true. We are changed and that life is a true life in us. 
This is what it means to be identified with him in his resurrection. And secondly, we are identified with him in his ascension. Not only resurrection, but ascension, verse 6b, 6a. Next, Paul says, and he has raised us up with him. He has raised us up with him. The expression raised up is sometimes used as a resurrection, and that's right. However, here the word do not mean resurrection. It's already happened. This phrase refers to Christ's ascension back into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And we, see, we saw that we are made alive and then have been given a new disposition. And now we are being raised and taken up with Christ into heaven. I'm not talking about people, those are waiting that we will be taken up, the fallacious view of rapture. Then what is, men, what is the meaning and significance of being raised with Christ for us? Being raised with Christ means that we belong to a new place. We do not belong anymore to this earth. Though we live on here, uh, on this earth, but we have a new belonging. We belong to Christ. Where he is, we belong to that place. We are no longer creatures only of this world. Before we were, but no longer. Bound by what we can see, touch, and smell, and taste. We are now people of God's great heavenly dwelling. And we think and work and speak now in spiritual categories. Now in Christ we belong more to heaven and less to earth. And that is the goal of Paul speaking to us. This means that we are God's kingdom people living on earth as alien. Again, um, I believe here's a sister from Korea somewhere. Anywhere. Yeah, I was in Korea and the first time uh, when I applied for a visa and I entered there and I got my student card and uh, on that card was alien registration card or alien card, something like that. That always reminded me, Paul's words, that we are alien on this world. We do not belong to this world for forever. We are from the country above. That's why we, he identified us with his ascension. Not only that, in verse 6, thirdly, we are identified with him in his session. Where is Christ now? If you ask some people, they have different questions. But Bible clearly tells he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father. That's what we call session. Resurrection, ascension, and session. Then Paul says in verse 6b, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where you are sitting right now, in, in still water here, and I'm standing here in still water right now. But God, the work of God's mercy is to sit us, not only here to listen the sermon and the word of God, but remind us that we are sitting with him right now, uh, spiritually with Christ right now. 
that the believers physically live on earth, but spiritually they are sitting with Christ in heaven. Wow. Wonderful truth and wonderful privilege for us. The believer is of both places now. He belongs to this earth, but he more belongs to that, that, that world with Christ. Do the believers physically live on this earth, but spiritually are sitting with Christ in heaven? That means we have two addresses now. I have two addresses. I have even three addresses. One address in Shawnee, one in Pakistan, and one in heaven. We have two addresses now. One in Stillwater or in Shawnee or somewhere else, and one in heaven. And we maintain two relationships at the same time, one to the earth and one to heaven. That's what we call already not yet tension. We, we should live in that tension. That, that's very good tension. We should always remember that tension. Though we are still in this world today that our physical, uh, at our physical locations, but God who sees the end from the beginning sees us in terms of relationship with Jesus Christ and he has seated us with him in the heaven. When Christ died, we died. When he arose, we arose. And we as when he ascended, we ascended. And when he is seated on the right hand of God, we are also seated with him. Now, what the purpose of our being exalted with Christ is not only for us, for our good pleasure, or for our benefits, or for, for boast, boasting, but it is for God's glory. God has a greater purpose in our salvation for his own sake. That's why verse five, 7 says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is his purpose. For choosing us, for bringing us, uh, for giving us life, resurrecting us, and, and uh, uh, taking us and uh, identifying us with Christ. The work of God's mercy has one great purpose, to show believers the riches of his grace throughout all ages to come. That's what verse 7 says. That's the purpose of God for the church, for this church, for you, brothers and sisters and young people here. The purpose of God for this church and for you is beyond yourself, beyond itself. The church is to be exhibition to the whole creation of God's wisdom and love and grace in Christ Jesus. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we go on mission trips. That's why we pray for missions. Therefore, God's people, if you are saved, if you are saved this morning, you are a billboard upon which God writes his love for the last sinner around this area and around the world. Your life is a testimony to his saving grace, and it should be. 
a testimony to his saving grace and power. Therefore, I would encourage you and urge you this morning, let us live like him as he lived. And let us love like him as he has loved us. And let us labor for his kingdom to show his rich mercy in Christ Jesus. Let us do these things so that others might be drawn to him and that he might be and they might be saved and God, God may be glorified. Amen. Let us pray. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are so gracious and loving that you took the first step and initiate to reach down to us while we were unable to reach up to you. Thank you for all your marvelous truths we have learned this morning. Thank you for your love that you have already revealed to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and your word. We pray for the truth that you have sown into our hearts this morning. Watch over that and protect it. May they take a root and produce wonderful things, things of beauty and great blessing to many, and live in your endless love. Lord, bless our souls this morning and bless this church and everybody. And be with everybody around the world. Your people are worshiping. Lord, be with us that we may continually living by your word and your will. For yours is the kingdom, the power and glory in, the age, in, the, in this age and forevermore. In Christ's gracious name I ask. Amen. In response to God's uh, gracious word, we would be singing from Psalm 86b, and I trust uh, we will be singing and standing and singing Psalm 86b. And after benediction, the doxology is from Psalm 146a.